In the next segment, we will talk to James Hanam. He is an Apple Distinguished Educator Trainer. He tweets at The Learn Maker, and he has a great blog there as well where you can see tons of cases of how to integrate iPads with literacy. And I believe he also has a consulting company that works in Great Britain. Although, who knows, maybe we can get him here to Bogota, Colombia as well. Let's go now to our talk. Um, All right, so my name's James, um, and I've been a teacher for 10 years. Um, I was a design technology teacher in a secondary school. I taught product design, graphics, photography, uh, film. Um, And then about two years ago, I kind of left uh, teaching, joined uh, Reseller, uh, basically like a technical company um, that sort of sells PCs and iPads and things like that. And um, yeah, I I essentially set up a training company within, uh, within that. Um, it's like a little startup type thing, and yeah, it went really well. It was really good. The focus for me was always about teaching and learning, and you know, sort of making use of the devices in the classroom. Um, but obviously, you know, sales people have sales targets, and for me, it wasn't really about how many boxes we could shift. It was about how those boxes or those devices were being used in the classroom. Um, so about sort of six months ago. Um, me and uh, a colleague that I work with, Jay, we decided to kind of jump out of all of that and basically start LearnMaker. Uh, so what LearnMaker is, is kind of an educational consultancy. We're both ex-teachers. Uh, we've both worked on quite a few one-to-one projects. So, you know, getting um, iPad devices or Chromebooks or any single mobile device, um, getting that one-to-one in the classroom. So. That could be 30 devices with 30 students, or it could be 3,000 devices with 3,000 students in a big school. Um, so we've done all that kind of stuff, but it's it's all about how the device is actually used as a tool as opposed to using it for absolutely everything. Um, so that's kind of where we come from with that. So what we're doing at the moment in the UK is we're working with, because we're only there's only two of us and it's a startup, we're working with quite a few schools that are low on the Ofsted rating. So Ofsted's um, kind of an agency that basically is set up to monitor and assess schools and you know judge whether they're good or not. Um, so what we do is basically look at the sort of bottom rungs, if you like, of those and help them use their technology better. Uh, that's pretty much what we do. Um, so at the moment, we're working with probably about 20 secondary schools across the country, across the UK, um, and looking at how they can use their iOS devices or their Nest, you know, Nexus's Android devices better to help teaching and learning. Um, that's that's kind of what we're doing. Um, but for us, it's not about the device necessarily. Obviously, you know, the iPad is a very successful device. I'm an Apple trainer, also certified Google guy. Um, but it's more about how that is actually used in the classroom to help the students and help the teachers sort of minimise, you know, the kind of bureaucracy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that, yeah, that's that's essentially what we do. Cool. Well, yeah, I mean, a couple of things that you talked about, just the, the idea of it being a tool to reach your learning objective, and I, I didn't read all of your blog, but I, I read through a few posts, and uh, a couple of things you just mentioned, and let's jump right into this one, where it says, you had a blog post called, the iPad is about impact, not not outcomes. Yep. And, yep. and you write about the impact on time, saving time, feedback to students, marking work, creating content, the cost impact for department heads, IT support, reducing overheads, management, hardware procurement. Yep. Um, and so I see the iPad is this, this great efficiency tool. It also lends itself to the accountability for students to have agency for their own learning and then tapping into student motivation. These all seem completely valid justifications for iPad deployment. But looking at a broader picture, considering cognitive architecture, reaching yeah. student multimodal learning, capturing thought in ways we couldn't manage until this device came out, 
documenting and sharing across synchronous and asynchronous spaces. So even though these concepts may not be the big sellers and may not have the kind of the impact, isn't this kind of the real game changer? Yeah, it is. Um, but certainly over here, the, the, the problem that you've got at the moment, or the, that I've found um, com you know, coming out of teaching, is the devices are being purchased or being used at the moment because the school down the road's got them. So there's no actual thought or very little thought about how they can actually improve the, you know, the, the kind of learning process. Um, so you know what we're battling away with at the moment is is just the first stages is you know what can we what are the easy wins in the classroom to get them to the next stage so yeah the you know the the first step of this is showing the efficiencies showing that they can mark and feedback show they can be creative in some way but yeah you know two years down the line the, the schools for example, the Esser Academy, um, which is in Bolton, um, De Ferris Academy in Staffordshire, they are sort of two, three years down the line, and that's when they're getting the benefit of them. But the problem that most schools in the UK face is how do you go from the traditional methods of teaching and you know, the very sort of IT-based you know, desktop machines, how do you bridge that gap? And for us, it's especially on the blog, it's, it's kind of making sure that staff or teachers and students and parents understand that you know the, the first steps to the the important bits. You know, getting used to using that technology and those quick wins. Once that's done, then yes, yeah, you get you, you get all the others, um, the other wonderful benefits. But from experience, if you go straight into that in a presentation or you go delivering that to to staff because it's such a a different concept entirely to what they're used to, it's kind of almost it just doesn't exist. You know, they just don't. It's it's almost you know. Um, it's too difficult. It's too difficult to imagine how that can actually enhance. So for us, it's that you know the, the first step is look. This is how this is going to save you time. This is going to free up time. So now you can then start thinking a bit more creatively about the way that students engage and learn. Um, mm. If that makes sense. Think about impact. You mean like kind of the impact is convincing teachers that this is a good idea to, to use in your classroom. You just touched on something else about the and you've had a blog post on this as well about the um, the TPAC model. Yep, yep. For my, my question up here. Um, we just went to a conference, uh, ASA, in, in Curaçao, where Will Richardson was a keynote speaker. And he talked um, about just how big the change we're going through really is. Calling yeah. up not to just uh, fix edu education, but to rethink their entire approach to education. iPad's been labeled as the Trojan horse of, of creativity. Yes. So thinking of like this teacher of the future, what are the, what would you prioritize as far as goals, as far as, how, you know, teacher training? Like, what are the skills that you see as important in the future teacher? And then, like, when you train teachers, what are the steps you would go through? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So, one of the, the problems, before I get to answering that, one of the problems that we've got in the UK is, um, at the moment, is there's actually, I think I think the, the figures, the, the statistics out there, um, I went to a teach meet the other week, and... 4,000 new teachers are leaving the profession every month in the last sort of 12 months, which is mental. Um, and the, the, the current traditional way of sort of, of new teachers coming into the profession over here is, you know, they'll have an NQT year, newly qualified teacher year, where they'll get assessed and they, they do various things. At the moment, they're getting paid quite a lot of money to, to actually become NQTs. So you're finding quite a few teachers... Um, or I'm finding quite a few teachers that are coming in for the money but don't understand or haven't quite grasped the concept of certain elements of teaching and some of the necessities. Um, 
certainly with current teachers as well and you know looking back on my teaching career I've always thought it's, it's one of the, the fundamental skills or fundamental things that the teacher should have is, is the ability to continually learn or to continually want to learn so really if you take that and boil that down even further it's just being inquisitive and trying to find out more um, there's, there's you know loads of stuff that we we sort of deal with day in day out that are that kind of inquisitive type nature that want to see behind the curtain and want to see how these things go. But I would say the vast majority that I've certainly been in front of in the last sort of six months um, are very much well you know I know all I need to know about this and I don't want to learn anymore and that's for me that's the key thing is is you know the, the inquisitiveness the the wanting to learn the wanting to try things out and you know, everything else comes as part of that really. Um, so I'd say that yeah, as a fundamental skill, you know, that's the that's the kind of thing I'd I'd want to see within the teacher training. The other element of things as well, it, that's kind of like I suppose the the sort of utopian thing that you'd want, but the practicalities of it. Um, at the moment, again, NQT courses that we're working with with certain universities in the UK and and looking at, they're very much focused around sort of subject content um, and. Again, you know, certainly in primary school, with the need to kind of come out and, and mix the subjects together and do project-based learning and those kind of things, there's very little of that available. So I think another sort of key thing I'd quite like to see, the, the ideal, would be to, to actually allow staff and allow student teachers to go and experience all the different ways of teaching. So not just being in focused in, say, one or two classes or one or two schools in their teaching practice, um, but certainly look at you know 10 or 15 schools over a year so again w one thing you know working in schools I've probably been in a handful of schools in my teaching career over 10 years coming to do what I'm doing now I've been in probably a couple of hundred to a thousand schools and again you know what I wish is that when I started teaching that I'd done this first you know actually go out and see all the other schools that are available see all the other ways of doing things the different setups and layouts of classrooms you know those kind of things that that you know training teachers don't really get they get just two maybe one two maybe three if they're lucky schools to go and visit and they may be you know looking at probably a handful of teachers when actually I think you know making use of this making use of social media making use of you know other schools nationally would be a, a lot better that's a bit of a long-winded answer but makes sense yeah no I, I, I this is a whole thing and you know we grapple with the, those same things we're an international school and, and so um, our foreign teachers that come through sign two-year contracts, and so the goal is to try to get them to stay. But like that yeah. school, if, if you're running a two plus one kind of average, um, then that's not very stable. So you know, we don't want to stress teachers out by trying to like push these really lofty goals on them with, with technology. But at the same time, we're buying more iPads every year. Uh, we're moving into a, we'll have one iPad for every two kids next year, and you know who knows maybe we'll go into one to one after that. And yeah. so it's getting, the, you know, listening to you talk about kind of those, those basic steps, like, like look, these are the immediate things you can do in your classroom. These are the things that just make your class run more efficiently, uh, give your students a little more voice, and at the same time, uh, getting teachers to realize in that TFAC model the, the pedagogical part and yeah. how drastically that is changing right in front of our eyes as content delivery, you know, can come in so many different multiple sources now. Yeah, uh, yeah where students can actually be expected at fifth grade to go off and, you know, find their own content and push their own learning. So these are the kind of frameworks we're working with setting up as well. Um, you guys want to throw anything Yeah, out? I was wondering, how is this, uh, as a consultancy 
you know, job that you guys do. Uh, how do you do, like, iPad integration? How is the iPad integration process working with the new curriculum for technology in England? Okay. Um, so I suppose there's loads of, loads of sort of facets to it, really. Um, you've got, when you're integrating, integration of the device into the curriculum, there's sort of like a technical element, and then there's obviously the sort of content pedagogical element to it. Um, so what you find is, from a technical point of view, is that you know most schools are on a Windows-based system, so file management, storage of device, and all those kind of things, you know, become a big problem to start with. So you have to kind of iron those out straight away. So we just basically, you know, there's loads of different simple ways of doing it. Just a USB drive in the bottom with an adapter that kind of nullifies all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then obviously there's cloud-based options. Again, with cloud-based options, the schools, most schools are limited. Um, with what they do or purely around policies. So for example, looking at cloud storage, Google Drive, um, Google Classroom, um, iCloud, you know, OneNote or uh, SharePoint, schools limit themselves with their policies. Obviously, you know, we can't share this on this network and those kind of things, safeguarding issues. So that for us is a big change is that as a, as a consultant um, as opposed to an app trainer, um, we'll go in and actually go, well, look, you know, you need to start looking at your policies and looking at the actual school structure, um, the paperwork structure, if you like, to adapt for these. Once you've got that kind of ball rolling or, you know, get people sort of asking questions, then the content side of stuff uh, with the new coding curriculum or the new computing curriculum, um, sort of key stage one and key stage two, the temptation is just to, you know, deliver everything through an iPad. Uh, so again, you know, we're finding schools that will teach Scratch. So the MIT Scratch, absolutely fantastic, um, but it doesn't work very well on an iPad. So they'll have Scratch Junior. So Scratch Junior is slightly different. And again, you know, for me, it's not really what you teach. You know, what the the app is that you teach through. It's the concept. So the concept of computing and the concept of coding is all about. It's almost like uh, design technology. It's thinking of the problem as a design cycle, and that's where. You know, that's where we try, or certainly I try to with the computing curriculum, try and focus people on it. It doesn't matter what you're teaching them as in the language of the coding. It's not that. It's the, you know, it's the process that's involved. So again, you know, the, the, the big um, sort of hold up, I suppose, with coding and computing at the moment is we must teach Java, we must teach Scratch, we must teach this, we must teach that. And it's like, actually, you don't have to teach that language. You just have to teach the concept. And then, you know, two years down the line, a year, a six-year-old student, you know, isn't going to be using Java now. They're going to be using something else. Or ten years down the line, it's going to be something completely different. But the concept of designing is still going to be around. You know, that that, that cyclic process, the ability to evaluate, the ability to be self-critical, the ability to work collaboratively, all these things are part of that curriculum, but they're not actually, you know, kind of... Um, I don't know what the word is really. They're, they're not actually sort of highlighted as that's what you need to teach. It's you know, it's, again, different sort of approach. Um, but that's that's kind of where we focus, or I certainly focus. It's more about the concept of it than it is actually what how you teach it or what app. And again, one of the big things in the UK at the moment is there's very there's quite a few sort of app trainers going out going look you need to use this 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 app and of course staff who are maybe you know 10 years from retirement are kind of going well hang on a second i've just got used to using powerpoint i don't want to be using 30 other apps to teach something you know so again it's it's just getting people you know used to 
you know, yeah, you can use whatever app you want. Don't worry about it. But it's the concept, the key element of the, you know, the design process that you want to be teaching. No, and that, that's very much, I think, where one of the areas where we're following right now at South by Southwest. I heard Paolo Blixstein talk from Stanford, and he's the Fab Lab guy. And you know, he talked about the same idea of the same um, design model that we're using in engineering is really the yeah. same model that you're using when you study characters and literature. Um, so. Yeah. You know, those could be applicable. It's not, and the other thing is like not getting lost in, in the tool itself. So it's that's a little bit um, implementing Minecraft as a design tool in the classroom. You know, the idea of like building empathy for an ancient culture, for example, by having to design structures for that culture. So this yeah, and we're, we're actually teaching coding through that as well. Um, so again, from a student point of view, it's it's showing relevancy. So again, perfect example. The scratch type stuff is absolutely amazing, you know, and it's a, a groundbreaker really. But the because everyone's jumped on it all at the same time, you've got secondary schools that have jumped on it and primaries, and they're teaching the same course. So a student in primary will have two years of a lovely scratch course, but then go to secondary and have exactly the same two years. <laughs> albeit they may be making a different type of game. And it's like, well, hang on a second, let's look at different ways of doing it. So, for example, Minecraft, uh, do you remember the old turtle? I don't know if you guys had it, the, the old turtle robots? Yeah, the robots. So yeah. my, first, my first teaching practice, I actually did a primary school project on robots, so, you know, programming the top and all that kind of stuff. But schools still have them, and it's like, well, that's a brilliant bit of technology. It worked 10 years ago. Why doesn't it work now? And But the, the, the problem that teachers face is the relevancy. So, you know, making sure that a student gets why that's actually applicable to them. So, for example, one of the big problems in Minecraft, being a Minecrafter, is finding diamonds. So, you know, you spend half your life crafting axes and then going down and finding diamonds. So what we do is there's a, a plugin called ComputerCraft, uh, which basically emulates a computer, like it's um, I can't remember the LUA um, is the, the the coding language Lua. Um, basically, it's like C Basic. It's really really simple. But what you have is you have a set of blocks. So one of them is the computer. You can also teach networking, so you can network all the computers together. You can even network printers, and it's got wireless access points all built into these blocks. You can even have GPS. And then you can also get these little Roma turtle blocks. So they're basically caterpillar tracked Roma blocks. You can program those in the same way that you'd program a robot in real life to go forward 10, left, you know, down, all those kind of things. But because you're then giving them something relevant, that enhances the learning a little bit further. So they can actually go home, sit on Minecraft on, you know, on their PC, and then start coding and programming in their own time. Um, and that's where we're seeing the real benefits of it, is that you know, these students before, if they were using a bee bot in class, they go, well, yeah, that's fine, I can program a little fuzzy bee to go around, but what, what good is that? And then when you start going, well, hang on a second, you've got Minecraft, this is what you can do with it. And they're like, oh my god, that's amazing. The other interesting thing is, with Minecraft particularly, is again, being in Java, you find that students, and I did this about two or three weeks ago in a primary school in Manchester, is, you know, year, uh, year four students, so, you know, five, six-year-olds, you say, look, how many people have got Minecraft? Everyone's hands go up. Okay, how many people have got Minecraft on the PC? You know, majority of hands go up. And you're like, how many people actually run their own server? And all these little kids are you know, sticking their hands up. You know, sort of out of 30, probably 25 stuck their hands up. And then you turn to the teacher and you go, look, you're teaching this in Scratch, but these kids are having to modify their own servers using Java, but they don't know they're doing it. You know, and it's just like... Once that happens, of course, all the, all the teachers go, now I see the point of Minecraft. 
Mm. You know, that, that for me is the genius of it all. Cool. So it, it sounds like really further than the, you know, the uh, whatever programming language or whatever software or tool we teach them, it's a really thinking and the skills at stakes, and that's what they're going to be using in the future now. That being said, I'm going to just do like a quick analogy in there. We're not trying to focus on the tools and the right and the type of software, whatever. Now, if you think about spaces, should you do you think we should stick to one space? Like, should we keep labs? Is there a need for a computer lab nowadays, for example, with all these hyper integration going on right now? Or should we? I think I think going forward, there probably isn't. And certainly schools that are being designed um, now, sort of, um, you know, new academies and that that are being built, you know, they're more open plan, there's a lot of breakout rooms, you know, those kind of things. But again, it's, it's that, you know, the, the sort of beginning, middle and end, you know, at the moment, you're looking, we're looking at uh, classrooms and going, well, yeah, in the future, this could be this, but it's, it's how do you get to that stage? So I still think there's a place for them, um, personally, uh, at the moment, just purely because of the way that some, especially here in the UK, where schools are geared around sort of student management systems that use large databases, they have to be on a PC, you know, they have to be on a PC system. Um, you know, various other things like that that are still going to make sure that you have those kind of devices in the classroom. Um, you know, five, six years down the line, uh, who knows? I, I think, you know, especially with the Surface, Microsoft Surface, you know, those kind of devices, that there's more power in those now. That's quite interesting and quite, you know, quite an interesting sort of concept to it. The problem I find with those is they're a little bit chunky still. Um, the, the key thing with the iOS environment is that it, because it's it's uniform across the devices, you know, from an iPhone, iPod, and an, an iPad, it's very easy to pick up. Whereas the sort of mobile desktop type thing is still a little bit fiddly and a little bit kind of chunky. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I totally think you know, give it sort of 10, 15 years, those kind of environments where you have dedicated labs or dedicated rooms, they, they'll be a thing of the past, but the problem with that is that you're still going to have the architecture, you know, we've still got it in the UK from the 1970s, you know, 1980s sort of buildings, you're still going to have those because of financial, you know, implications and things like that, so it's it's just finding sort of halfway houses, if you like, um, as to how to make those buildings more flexible. Now, then, if, if you think about it, about as far as uh, design and technology goes, you kind of still will want to have those spaces, right, where you can actually sit and work with them. I yeah, I think so. Yeah, and one of the sad things that, that's, that's certainly happening or is a bit of a trend at the moment over here is, is DT labs are actually disappearing because they're too expensive. Um, but, you know, what, you, yes. Design and technology labs. Oh, okay. Yeah, design technology. Um, so the old workshops, woodwork, metalwork, you know, those kind of things, they're disappearing over here. I mean, I've been in a couple of schools and, you know, you go, oh, because, you know, being an ex-DT teacher, I want to go and have a look at the workshops and sort of see how everyone's, you know, layouts are and that. And, of course, they go, well, actually, they don't exist anymore. We've just got an empty room now. You're like, wow, that's that's mad. You know, those, those kind of opportunities to sort of get your hands dirty and get practical with things have, have, have disappeared. But, again, those spaces, and certainly from my experience, um, one of the last projects that I did when I was a teacher um, was basically sort of renovating some rooms and converting them into sort of flexible spaces. Um, so I, I can send you the link to the album actually, and there's like loads of photos and stuff. I document the whole thing; it's really cool. Um, but again, it's the flexibility. So certainly with 3D printing, laser cutting, 
Um, there's very much, there's, there's not as much dust, you know, and dirt and grime and all that kind of stuff. So again, those spaces can now become a bit more flexible, a bit more clean, and you know, you can certainly do some of the messy stuff a lot more tidily. And again, in such a smaller space. Um, and again, you know, traditional DT teachers, you know, my old boss, and and that would be like, well, hang on a second, you're losing the skills. Uh, but my argument still is that I'm still teaching the same skills. It's just through a new type of technology, you know, a new type of device. Um, but yeah, you know, there, there will be a time when I think, you know, there'll be these uh, wonderful utopian type buildings that are all flexible and, you know, you can pull a drawer out here and lift this up and all that kind of stuff. But at the moment, for me, for the next certainly the few years, it's, it's kind of just making sure those spaces can be flexible. Again, teaching. So from teaching from the front of the classroom, you know, um, where you have the interactive whiteboards or you have, you know, a big projector screen. Those kind of things are now becoming a thing of the past. You know, we're, we're looking at schools now that are coming to us with, like, um, a purchase order that they're looking, you know, they're just wanting our advice. And they're buying, say, £90,000 worth of interactive whiteboards. It's like, well, hang on a second. You've got, you know, every member of your staff has got an interactive whiteboard in an iPad. Just use that. You know, don't spend the copious amounts of money on the screen. Actually, just put a few TVs around, and then have you know wirelessly linked to those with an Apple TV or something similar. That's where I think that's where I think the future is going to be at the moment is looking at the spaces that we've got and actually taking away that preach and teach from the front, um, taking away those interactive whiteboards and just putting multiple screens on, or even projectors that rotate and follow you around the classroom. Those kind of things, I think, is going to be you know the intermediary step. Hmm. Uh, following up from Diego's question, uh, more than the spaces, uh, how how do you see the schools in the UK um, going about the curriculum in terms of keeping specialist classes uh, versus only integration to deliver those design concepts uh, you know, throughout the eight through twelve um, curriculum? Yeah. So so. Keep, rather than keeping it um, discrete subjects, actually blending them together. So, okay, with with primaries, it's very much at the moment is they are kind of teetering on the edge without even knowing about it. Really, you know, they're, they're very much project-based learning. And again, when you put the IT in the classroom, then all of a sudden the IT becomes discrete, a separate subject. And it's like, well, hang on a second. You know, primaries they'll teach Aztecs and Romans. Romans is a perfect example. You know, we're looking at numbers and we're looking at, you know, um, sort of DT with the leather working and metal working. You're looking at history, looking at geography, looking at all these wonderful things. But then when it comes to coding or computing, it's taught discreetly. Um, so, again, it's primary schools. Most of them will do, pro you know, project-based learning. And it's the same. Secondary schools, you know, there's, there's a couple, only a handful that we've been in that are actually looking at that kind of way of, of, of working. There is a sort of a tendency now for newly designed schools, these ones with the flexible workspaces, um, to be able to do those kind of open-ended project type things where instead of students going around um, individual lessons, they will have, you know, a week within a project. Um, there's certainly, um, I'm trying to think what the school it is now, JCB Academy um, is quite an interesting one. So they're an engineering um, academy school. Um, and very awesome concept. Basically, the students come out at year nine, just before their GCSE, so 15. They go there as a, it's an engineering specialism, but they teach in projects, and the projects are split into terms. They have six projects a year, um, but they're sponsored by large companies. So, for example, um, 
National Rail. So they have to look at a railway crossing, they have to look at redesigning the railway crossing, but it's looking at the language in the signs, it's looking at creating the instruction manuals for the staff, it's looking at you know the maths and the physics that's involved in the trains, it's looking at you know all those kind of things and all the engineering concepts as well. That for me is really interesting. Um, so I think there's, I think it's a slow shift and I think obviously government especially over in the UK being as they are with the curriculum and it changes every time a new a new power comes into into being um, we'll see but I think certainly the academies that you know the university academies are, are, are looking at that quite deeply with project-based learning I quite like the idea of it to be honest uh, changing scope a little bit we spoke recently with um, Daniel Kemp who's the creator of the book creator app and yep. we were Surprised to learn that, like the original intent of the app was really not for education, but that yeah. education appropriated the app. Um, thinking on Steve Jobs and his like early romance with education and getting you know Apple II Pluses into the classrooms, and then his disillusionment. How has the iPad changed education? I think we've covered a lot of those points, but how has education changed the iPad? And is there any is there any indication that the device itself will evolve according to educational needs? Uh, now this is a this is an interesting one. So, as a teacher, I I think um, the device is going down a road, and it's it's a consumer unit. So you know it's it's designed for the consumer. It's not really designed for education. It's been adopted by education, and obviously um, you know the impact in the classroom is quite great with those. But I think as a consumer unit, still. Um, if you know if it's still produced in five years as a consumer unit, I don't think we'll see much change um, with regards, you know, it, it sort of bending towards education. I think it's still going to be very similar. For example, the new um, Air Two, you know, it's got a thumbprint scanner on it. Well, that becomes a little bit tricky to use and utilise when you're in a classroom and you've got a bookable set of them, you know, those kind of things. Um, so yeah, I think as long as it remains a consumer unit, I think there there are some great advantages to it in the classroom um, but you know if they brought out like an e-pad for example that was geared around education that would be pretty useful uh, having said that there's obviously the new device enrollment program uh, that Apple do they've um, you know their, their education team have, have been quite proactive in using uh, the DEP and I think it released in America about six months ago it's just come out here uh, but essentially, one of the big bugbears that schools have is the population with Apple device, um, uh, Apple IDs. You know, in each individual device has to have an Apple ID. Now, obviously, as a consumer unit, that works in a family. You know, every you know John, Tim, Sue, and all that within the family actually have their own Apple IDs. But in a school, that becomes very difficult to manage. So again, you know, looking at what Apple have done and listened in education to things, then you know this DEP, the device enrollment programs, come out. It makes it a, a thousand times, a hundred thousand times easier to deploy an iOS device in the classroom. So I think there's two strands to it, isn't there? There's that the, the kind of front end, the product itself. It will always be a commercial product. It will always be a you know consumer product. It's got to cater to the masses. Education is a small slice of that. But having said that, the back-end systems that Apple have, you know, there is an education system um, that is being adapted quite readily, and it's almost every iteration, almost every update that comes out with um, iOS, there's an education slant to it. So yeah, I think you know, I think it is changing. I think Apple are listening, um, and certainly as an Apple education trainer, there's been a big shift in the last sort of 18 months, really. 
um, in that the courses, I don't know if you're aware of the courses, when you, over here when you buy sort of 25 to 50 iPads or iOS devices, you get a certain number of training days allocated for free from Apple. So, you know, as a trainer, I would come in and I can deliver from a catalogue of about 13 different courses. Now, previously, they were quite rigid. Um, you know, say, for example, garage band in the classroom. Now, in teaching in a secondary school, you'd probably be in front of 15, 20 staff. Only one of those would be a music teacher, all the rest would be a geography teacher, English teacher. And again, it's very difficult for those courses to sort of hit the target. Um, but in the last sort of 18 months or so, Apple have actually started re-sort of looking at those and looking at the way that that works. Um, and there are certainly now, within the catalogue, there are mentoring programs and planning and vision and planning programs that actually allow schools to spend a bit more time thinking about how they integrate the device into their school as opposed to, wow, isn't this app amazing? Um, so I think that, you know, Apple is starting to very much switched on. And I think, you know, again, you know, we do stuff with Google, we do stuff with Microsoft, but I think Apple have kind of got the got the edge to that at the moment in that, you know, they're, they're starting to see, well, hang on, these devices are flipping brilliant at, you know, education type, um, you know, pedagogy learning and all that kind of stuff. Um, so how do we actually get our trainers to then support that? So, yes, it's quite interesting, quite interesting. Hmm. Does that kind of answer the questions? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've got more. <laughs> That's good. No, carry on. I can carry on waffling all day. <laughs> um, yeah, I, one I want to make sure we cover because uh, some of us have applied to be Apple educators as well. Um, what does it take? Like, what would your suggestions be for people who are pursuing that route? Um, what should they get under their belt as far as experience, resume? Uh, publishing, like, what are some of the prime factors? Okay, um, so again, the shift the, the, the shift change at the moment is that Apple are very keen on uh, actual teachers, um, and certainly over here in the UK, the, the requirements are that you have at least four years' worth of teaching experience under your belt, um, and I, I think that's key, um, and again, you know, the, the kind of legacy um, at the moment that, that's out there is there are educational technologists, people who have worked in education as kind of um, we have them as like pupil referral units, so you know badly badly behaved students previously in the you know sort of ten five ten years ago would then be taken out for focus groups to sort of play with garage band and those kind of things. So there's still legacy trainers like that around, but the the shift now for Apple is you have to be a teacher because teachers know teachers. And again, you know, from from what I've experienced certainly out in the sort of sales world is that teachers will only really talk to teachers. Um, you know, if you go in as a salesman, you're you're batting your head against a wall almost because you know you're a salesman. But if you go in as a teacher, you're more likely to get a response. So Apple's Apple's thing at the moment is that you know you, you have to be a teacher. So four years experience on that at least. Um, there are various stages, and again, you can just look. I think it's apple.com forward slash aet. I think um, is the is the site. I might be wrong on that. Um, but basically, there's a set of criteria for those. Um, but basically, yes, you do that. Then you have to kind of explain, put your CV in and explain what you've done. Um, I was lucky enough when I first started teaching to have a very large pot of money in a nice project where I was off timetable for a long period of time to sort of set up an Apple Classroom, if you like. Um, so I had that behind me. Um, I had quite a lot to do with using iOS and OS technologies in the classroom and showing impact. One of the things that... I kind of started doing when I was certainly a younger teacher, and then as, as managerial things got in the way, I, I stopped doing it, which is a bit of a regret, but I used to take photos of everything. 
Um, so everything I did just documented that. There's a big move at the moment, certainly with primary school trainers and teachers that are out there, is to document everything on blogs. That goes a long, a long way. So just record everything that you do, really, and you know, uh, you know those kind of things certainly help when you you sort of backing up with evidence. Um, and then the other thing is, is then they interview you. So you go through quite. A, I would say it's a very rigorous process, insanely rigorous, actually. Um, I went. I've been through sort of four Ofsteds in my teaching career. So where the inspectors come in and inspect the school. So I'm, I'm sure you probably have similar. Um, and then you know the alarm bell rings at school, and then the inspectors come in, and everyone's on their best behaviour and all this kind of stuff. Well, an Apple uh, interview uh, process is probably the equivalent of ten of those stress levels. Um, I mean, it's it's something that should it should be experienced again. It's it's just it's incredible. They're very thorough, and again, looking at it from this side of the fence is is the Apple education trainers I know now from this side of it have gone through the mill, you know, and have been uh, have been handpicked properly. Um, you know, you're not going to get a trainer that's just kind of done an online test and then just gone, yeah, I've got the badge. This is a very rigorous process. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's sort of you know playing my own trumpet a little bit, but um, you know their 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 uh, their selection system is is second to none. It really is. So it's, it, it, and it, and again, I didn't you know um, when you, when you go through these, you get a couple of attempts at doing them. Um, so you know, don't be disheartened if you go through the mill first time and uh, and fail. Um, but you know, just sort of listen to what they've got to say and then and then take it on board. But it, you know, of, of all the qualifications that I've I've had, that I would say that's the most rigorous thing I've ever been through, really. <laughs> Uh, uh, you mentioned that, that you also, in terms of uh, consulting with different schools, you've also implemented projects with other technologies, not necessarily Apple. You have limitation uh, from Apple in terms of having the, the Distinguished Educator batch and, and uh, doing projects with other technologies. Do you have any limitations in that sense? Uh, sorry, say that again. The, uh, when you, I understand that when you become a, an Apple Distinguished Educator, you're like committed to using only Apple technology. So, have you experienced any any limitations if you're working with a school that doesn't use Apple? No, not at all, really. Um, again, it, it depends. Um, so, when we go in, if if we're if we know we're dealing with an Apple technology school, then obviously we'll we'll focus around around the Apple technology. Um, but certainly other schools that we've been working with, um, you know, again, it's it depends. It depends on what we walk into. Um, for example, a few weeks ago with uh, Microsoft, um, you know, we went into a Microsoft school and they were looking particularly at that. They didn't want anything else, just Microsoft Surface. So you just, you know, you, you, as a as a teacher and as a as a consultant, you, you're trying to make the best of what they've got. So again, it's just looking at the workflows. But most of this, most of the stuff that we do comes off the back of the Apple um, sort of technology. So the workflows that are involved in that, using a, a certain, you know, a minimal amount of apps to create content and then distribute content. It's it's the same theory across all of the devices, really. It's you know, how do you gather information? How do you process information? And then how do you share it? That, that's essentially it. Um, I haven't, we haven't found any limitations. I mean, Apple have been very good to us, um, and certainly speaking to Google and Microsoft, they're exactly the same. They like what we do, um, and and for us, it's it's again, as I said at the beginning, it's not what the te it's not about the technology. You know, it's not about the device. It's about what we do with it. It just so happens that the majority of schools that we deal with have iPads or have an OS or iOS um, taint to them, and they use those. Um, 
you know, there are schools that have, um, certainly there's um, a school in the south in Dorchester called Damer's First School, it's a primary school, um, they're moving into, I don't know if you've heard of, you probably might not have done, Prince Charles has got a, uh, a model school, um, or sorry, a model village, as in like a model kind of social experiment um, called Poundbury. And they're moving into uh, the, the primary schools moving into into that uh, location, but what they wanted from the outset is they didn't want to be in one camp. They wanted the students to have a rounded experience. So you know, not just having iOS, but looking at Android, looking at Microsoft, looking at Linux, you know, those kind of things. Um, so what we've done with those is actually gone right. Well, you know, in early years, small hands, you know, kids throwing things around and sand pits and that kind of stuff then look at an iPod, an iPod Touch, perfect technology, there isn't anything comparable to that, so using those to start with, then looking at iPad minis, so it, you know, as you go through the school you're looking at iOS, when you get to sort of just before secondary school, that's when you start looking at Chromebooks and then the Microsoft stuff, but also utilising all the other technologies beforehand, so they all kind of, you know, so the students leave the primary school with those, you know, with the ability of going, well actually yeah, it doesn't matter what device I've got, I can you know, I know from this from previous experience. Um, and again, you know, all the companies that we've worked with with that, you know, the key three uh, are very keen on that because it, it shows that their product mixes with the others quite nicely. Um, and again, it's the outcome really. It's, it's you know, that, that student has got the ability to learn around or think around the problem as opposed to, oh, well, I've only ever used a iPhone or I've only ever used an Android device or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you have time for a couple more? Yeah, 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 it's fine. <laughs> um, so one would be just like, I want to make sure we kind of have this one, like, like Apple's coming to Columbia, or they're just offering now for the first time the Apple Distinguished Educator program, and I imagine they'll come in with volume purchasing soon as well. Let's pretend that we convince our school to, uh, to bring you down here to, to train some of us. Um, what would you want to know about us as a school, and, and what would you offer? Okay, it's simple one for me. This is so easy for, for finding out about you guys. Is I just want to be in your classrooms. That's it. Because um, again, you know, the other consultancies and other trainers will just come in and you know deliver to teachers. I'm 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 a teacher, and I know actually, it doesn't matter what you do in the workshops outside the classroom. It's what happens inside the classroom. So I'd want to, you know, if I if, if I was down for a week or five days, I'd want to spend every day at least a few hours in classrooms across across your schools. Um, so for me, that's the key is is actually seeing what you do at the moment, and then once you see what's going on in the classroom, you can then go, well, actually, look, if you just do this with this device, this might help you a little bit more, or you know, those kind of things, as opposed to you must do it this way. Um, and again, that's the way we win. Or we, oh, that sounds a bit harsh, but it's the way we win staff over is. Actually, look, I'm not here to completely change your life at the moment. I'm just here to make it easy. You know, a lot easier for you to do the things that you do well and give you a bit more time to learn these things in the future. So, yeah, first off, the thing, the thing that I'd want to do is just be able to have access to your classrooms. Come in, team teach. You know, bring a handful of devices and then just sit down and go. Look, these are the things that we can do. Um, what was it? Sorry, what was the other part? I've, I've kind of gone off a little bit. And then the other one was... Um, um, like, what would you offer? But I, I think you kind of covered that. Okay. Um, yeah, again, it's, it's, it's just purely... For me, it's the teaching and learning. You know, it doesn't matter what device it is. It's what, you, what you've got in your classroom and how to make best use of it. Um, for me, it's, it's kind of reducing your workloads and your, your costs, if you like. You know, your time cost, your workload cost, your stress cost. 
it's reinforcing your your teaching and learning. It's you know what as a teacher are you really good at? Let's make that better. What are you weak at? And let's make that better. Um, yeah, you know it's it's that kind of thing. And then that's, yeah, that's it for me really. This is Carol. <laughs> Hiya. It was nice to see you still going on. I been very busy passing on iPads this morning. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's good. This is this is lovely. I like this. <laughs> um, so, a question about change and, and culture. I put a question up there about photography and how, when photography was invented, it was really a hundred years before people did anything really interesting with photography, with, with Alfred Stieglitz and the whole photographic movement in New York at that time. Then, Viz uh, Stone, the Twitter guy at South by Southwest, had an interesting quote where he talked about, with the rate of change right now, with the way we're connected with our technologies, we can accomplish in one year what took a hundred. Um, so a couple of questions, sort of like what will this rate of change will affect, how will this transform the classroom and then how much is human culture the impediment to that? I mean we have devices that now can see, can hear, can feel and yet it, putting those devices to actual use, is it just a matter of having all this technology around us and all this network and connectivity or is there a cultural impediment to just humankind that will slow that down? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So I was uh, I was at a talk, uh, actually, funny enough, for Apple, um, probably about two weeks ago now. And there's um, an absolutely fantastic bloke called Abdul Chowan, um, and he was the director of Esser Academy. So he is um, one of the well, Esser Academy is pretty much the first school in the country to go one to one with iOS devices. But more than that, it, it, it's, a, it's a school that's completely revolutionised the way it teaches. Their classrooms are completely different. Their teachers are completely different. Um, you know, he's taken a failing school and made it awesome. Um, and in his presentation, he showed, and I'll, I'll see if I can find the photos, but he showed an interesting thing. When he first started the project, um, he wanted to look at how technology had changed in the classroom. So he put in Google, he just searched for techno uh, classroom technology 19th century, classroom technology 21st century, and he got two pictures. And in this presentation, he put the two pictures, like one slide, the, the first one, the 19th century one up first, and it was a picture of rows of chairs, rows of um, desks, and a blackboard at the front. And then the second one, he switched over and he said, this is what I found, this is the only one that I found of any good quality, 21st century, and it's identical, but it's in colour. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. And he said, well, look, the other thing is, is let's have a look at, uh, let's have a look at, he said, then I thought, well, maybe it's education, maybe, maybe let's have a look somewhere else. So he looked at an operating theatre. So he Googled 19th century operating theatre and 21st century operating theatre and put the two side by side on the same slide. So one of them is this old like English uh, observatory type thing where you've got like wooden rows above them and they're all looking down on these like candlelight things and and then the next one was like a, C a CRT scan and then like a live X-ray thing and then these sort of uh, virtual tong things for cutting somebody open. And he was like, you know, this this is what's going on in the rest of the world. Why is education so slow. And it's it, it kind of dawned on me, it's like, well actually, yeah, that's, that's why, why is that? Um, and it, I suppose the, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of reasons for it, um, but that's, that's one of the problems, is that, you know, from what I've seen as well, is that this technology is so fantastic, um, and one of the, the, the pains that I had whilst I was in teaching was, you know, the, the, the potential of the technology is so fantastic, 
but what's limiting is the is the is the policies that are in place or the procedures that are in place and ultimately those policies and procedures are made by somebody uh, one of the biggest arguments I have when we go into places is especially the marketing and feedback so we're working with a school in Liverpool at the moment with their maths department um, and basically the maths department you know under a lot of pressure and they had you know low results and a dip in results but they had iPads so we've gone in to kind of help them out you know and make better use of it and one of their focus points from the school inspector was looking at marking and feedback so getting feedback back from the students and one of the one of the things that came up was like well hang on a second but you know our marking and feedback at the moment is um, a red pen and a green pen so the students read the, the staff market and they write a comment the students then have to read the comment and then answer the comment so they write it back and then this, the member of staff then has to read that comment and then mark it back again and this is happening all over the country it's not just one school this is happening everywhere and I was like oh that's just painful you know just imagine the hours that are being wasted or used in doing all this feedback and how much do students actually read from that and again the, you know, the thing comes, well, that's what we've done. That's what we do. And it's like, well, hang on a second. Why do you do it? Oh, well, the policy says so. Well, who made the policy? Well, an SLT member two years ago made the policy. It was like, well, change the policy. Just rewrite it. You know, wh wh why do you have to do something just because it's on a bit of paper? That, for me, is the, the, the fundamental. And that is, again, as you said before, it's, it's, it's down to the, the, the human element, the person element that... The, the, the problem is it's not the technology or the limitation of the technology it's the person element and again from a technical point of view you said about wireless and, and those kind of things is that the majority of schools here are actually managed by a uh, like a local council or you know a, a local council will provide technical assistance to the school or funding to the school um, so you have you know guys that have been historically with Microsoft products and then you know they're trying to schools want iPads they've got to try and integrate those devices in somehow and they're like well actually that doesn't work you know you can't do that and again they're the problems that you face it's like well the guy the technical guy that we pay X amount of money a year for has just said this doesn't work you're like oh dude it does work it just needs a little bit of tweaking we have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> just whoa <laughs> You know, um, so and again, it's this, it's this, okay. it's it's being scared, isn't it? It's it's the the human element again. It's that fear of change, and it's that it comes back to that thing of you know when we're talking about the NQTs, it's the the wanting to learn and the being inquisitive. The 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 I, the schools that get ahead have a technical team behind them or a leadership team that want to know stuff. They want to push the boundaries. They want to learn more. Um, and again, you know, you can you can see it when now I've gone across all these schools, you know, across the UK. You just look at them and you just think, you've got it. Or as soon as we walk in now, we can we can pretty much tell what we're going to get. Is you know, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, you, you haven't spoken to me about that. Okay, that's why this is not working. You know, those kind of things. It's it's uh, it's the most interesting thing I think I've ever done in my life. You know, coming out and doing this kind of stuff. So kind of touching on that and also something you said earlier about, about just the tech having a, a definite purpose. But one thing I've been really attracted to since I saw Notosh speak at a conference, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but I think the, there's a Scottish guy in there and they're a design uh, thinking consultant group. Um, and this focus in design thinking of, of empathy and also the pushing of all of this collaborative learning, do you see any particular project models that are the most successful with Tech implementation at the same time. Oh, for collaborative learning. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, 
It depends. There, there are there are some projects that the, the unsuccessful ones are the ones that don't have a clear focus. Um, and again, you know, teachers are very good at planning. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's that's what teachers do well. They they can plan something out. But when it comes to tech, it just all falls down. Um, so for me, it's where the where the collaboration projects or the elements come in is where it's planned out. There's some form of vision to it, even if it's just on the back of a, a beer map that just goes, look, this is what we're going to do here. Um, you know, so for me, the collaboration projects that I've seen work have all got a vision, they've all planned, they've all got people buying at different levels of the project, so from a leadership point of view to the people that are doing it at the front end. Um, the, 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 the ones that work really well, or the, the elements that work really well that I've found with collaboration you know the, the OneNote and the SharePoint and these kind of things. The Microsoft products work very nicely, but you have to have the back end set up. You know, from my experience, you know, again, I'm just a, a teacher bod that does consultancy. I'm not a tech, techie, but the, the problem with that is that there's so many buttons to tick and cross and get things set up. It's all very kind of Microsofty and technical. The elements where you've got Google Classroom or the you know the Dropbox type scenario, the cloud-based things that are very simple, they work quite nicely. But again, it's very difficult the front end to load up. You know, it's very difficult to, to get those things working properly on the front end. What I have seen though, especially with iOS devices, is things like Shobi. I don't know if you guys have, have heard of Shobi. Um, Shobi is like a marking and feedback, like a conversation. Um, S H O W B I E. Um, so Shobi is a brilliant little app. Um, it's free for, for students and, and free on the whole for teachers. You can subscribe to it. But what that does is it almost works like um, it's like works like Dropbox in that you can upload files to it, but it also has like a text message conversation element to it. So school like what basically happens is the teacher will have a shared folder, the students attach themselves to the shared folder and they can share stuff. But when you start like kind of looking at it, you think, well hang on a second. A school network where they have planning and preparation and policies, that's all it is. It's just one shared folder and everyone has access to it. So why don't we start putting teachers together on it? So this, the head teacher has a folder and then all their department then or faculties linked to it and all the teachers linked to it. So we've been kind of playing around with that. That works really nicely because it's all in one area and it's all mobile. Um, and there's, there's various others, but for me, the, the, the collaborative element to that is just keep it simple and try and keep it into one area. The, the schools that have like three or four different set, you know, like a website, and then they have a, a Dropbox account, and then they have this and they have that, and it doesn't work. It, it, it's too faffy. It's just keeping it nice and simple, keeping the core. That show me for me just seems to work every time. Mm. Okay. Well, we have. Uh... We're a school, so of course we have other pending things on our schedule. <laughs> Although uh, I, I, w I have, would love to talk more, I'm going to shoot you some more questions if you, if you don't if you mind interacting with us in that way. Our last segment for this podcast will take us to the University of Indiana, where we will um, have a dialogue with Yahweh Lu and Alicia Ding. These are two researchers and doctoral candidates, um, and they'll walk us through some of the research projects they've been working on and give us some advice as well on good practices and in, in tech integration. Um, so, um, hi, I'm Yahweh Lu. I'm from Taiwan. This is my fourth year in this program, and I'm majoring in uh, instructional systems technology, so you can call it educational technology as well. So um, my focus mainly on looking at how, especially early childhood teachers, use technology in their instructions but I'm more um, interested in specifically in um, 
literacy instructions. So um, what teachers, um, how teachers um, infuse iPads or other technologies such as um, smart boards or computer stations into their instructions. Um, I'm planning to do my dissertation in an elementary school that they just started um, the one-on-one uh, one -on -one iPad program. So I want to get into the classroom, document a teacher, how this teacher used technology to plan for the whole semester, for the whole year. And um, we just uh, did a study looking at one-on-one -on -one, um, iPad programs. Uh, we worked with four teachers. Um, we'll talk more details um, in a minute. But um, OK. Um, hi, my name is Aichu Ding, or you can call me Alicia. That's my English nickname. I'm a third-year PhD at Indiana, Indiana University, and I'm actually doing double major in both um, literacy, cultural language education, and the instructional systems technology. Um, my research interest is mostly focusing on computer-assisted language learning and language teachers' technology integration practice and their pedagogical belief behind their um, technology integration practice. So the current research project I'm working on right now is a multi, multi, multiple case study focusing on um, language teachers, ESL and EFL teachers who are te actually teaching English in different cultural contexts, including like Korea, in China, and in the United States. I want to see how they are incorporating technology into their English instruction and what kind of pedagogical beliefs is behind their um, technology integration practice. I think. Um, for me, I believe the, the teacher's pedagogical beliefs will sort of lead how they integrate technology into, into their practice. And that is also why um, I'm really interested in learning about their beliefs and their practice at the same time. So yeah, that's a little bit about myself. Great. So um, if we have time at the end, I'd love to ask you some questions specifically about some of those programs. But I know that we had already outlined um, a series of slides that you are going to walk us through some research projects you already did. So what I'll do right now is I'll open up the screen share. Um, mm -hmm. And then, actually, I probably should have put you in control of this because you'll know the pace we're moving at. But I'll, I'll open this up. And then uh, as we go through, can you guys see that OK? Yeah. OK. And so if you wouldn't mind, just narrate through slide the first five slides I think are mostly about your project uh, and so that would be cool to just have you guys talk to us about what the research project was about okay um, so um, we we have a connection with this elementary school um, where is a school that ha they have been piloted the one-on-one -on -one iPad programs since 2011 and so last summer, uh, we were lucky to get a connection with the principals and the teachers. Um, they allowed us to get into a classroom to do classroom observations. And uh, right after the observations, we um, conducted interviews with those teachers. We have four teachers in our case. So two, um, they are kindergarten teachers, and two, they are first grader teachers. And specifically, there's one teacher. She is a pilot teacher. So um, before they actually adopt one-on-one um, -on -one iPad program in 2011, they piloted this um, program in certain classrooms 
for one year, and then they actually implement that in the following years. So I think that's the reason why this school becomes very successful um, in terms of um, integrate iPads into their classrooms. And then um, our research question basically is to looking at how these teachers using iPads in their um, daily literacy instruction. And um, what's their perception? What are the challenges that they encounter during this um, um, implementation? And um, we kind of categorize the apps they used for um, children literacy practices, but um, we we didn't include that here, but if you guys are interested, we can share the list that um, the app we're teaching about literacy. Because I know um, one of you are elementary teachers, the two of you. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, three of us here are in elementary. Carol is our coach for uh, primary. Actually, she's coaching and teaching right now. So she's very active in the selection of the apps as well. Um, and then we have a core suite of apps that we use in elementary as well. Um, so yeah, we would love to see what they're using as well. Do you want me to stay on this slide, or should I go forward to the next one? Um, yes, we can move to the next one. So um, this is a picture that we took um, in their classroom. So in their classroom, they have a board that includes all the activities. So um, as you may know that in most early um, elementary classrooms, teachers usually do a lot of centers or station activities. So this is how they organize different um, stations. And then for every uh, daily instruction, they will assign different apps for different tables, that's different stations. And in their classroom, they have one computer center for students to use, uh, I think, five or six computers. And um, if you can go to next slide. Yeah. This is one day when we observe the teachers doing um, the daily um, in literacy instructions. The teachers put the apps that they are going to use on the board. So that's like a queuing system for students to know what they should do during that time, what apps they should focus on, and then the teacher rotates different apps to different tables, to different stations. So um, I think this is a great strategy if you guys want to use iPads for early kids, because um, they, they don't have a higher literacy skills to recognize the words if you just tell them please open the Endless ABC app. They may have difficulty to find the app, but if you create a card for them, it would be very helpful for them to get idea and know which apps that you really want them to focus on. And um, next slide. This is the card that I mentioned. It's, they categorize uh, all the apps that they are going to use and into different blankets. So every time when they um, want kids to play with um, certain apps, they grab the card and show the kids. This is the app that we want you to do. So things like that. And this slide is, um, we will talk about this later, but this is a contract that they shared with parents and the kids in the beginning of the year. So when they start to use the iPads, they ask the kids to learn the rules about using iPads correctly how to hold it, you have to wash your hands before you use iPad. And uh, all the parents signed this contract with kids. And then they gather those contracts together and put that into their iPad cards. 
So that's the uh, background of this study. Um, I don't know if you so, have questions. Yeah, can we stop there and just ask a couple of questions? One was, I know that uh, in your research, teachers gave feedback and you use case-based learning, at least with your students, but the way they captured feedback from the teachers was Google Docs. And then the teachers would um, talk about difficulties, and some of the difficulties they identified were problems with network, or um, what were some of the most common difficulties they had just using the iPads in the classroom? Um, so for the challenges and like the difficulties teachers have with using iPad in their classroom, I would say like first, sometimes the app did not work as the teacher intended. So one of the situation will be like, because you don't have any teachers, we don't have enough fundings, right? And so they will try to find like the free apps or the light version of a certain educational apps. But in that situation, they, the teachers can only access partial of the contents on that app. So sometimes we, it will cause some sort of frustration among the teachers and the students. And so for that part, um, we will suggest that the teachers before they start implementing a certain apps in their classroom, they really have to explore the app fully and then always have a plan B in their mind. If they cannot go to a certain level of the, the app, how are they going to encourage their, stud encourage their students? Or um, how will they motivate their students to work on some other app and then sort of ch make sure that they are gapping the, you know, bridging the gap between two different apps to make it match singly and mm. seamlessly. And then the other type of um, challenges we observed in our study is that sometimes the school internet connection can be really unstable. So... <laughs> we, don't know, yeah. we don't know what you're talking about. I guess that's the, the situation among all the schools, including our university, and I'm not sure if there's any way we can fix that problem, but um, as teachers, we have to be aware of the, this, this issue, because some of the apps, it will link you to some online resources. Like one of the apps um, the teacher mentioned about is called Pocket Zoom. So in that, in that app, students will explore different type of animals, or like four-legged animals, mammals, non-mammals, things like that. And then with each, 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 um, with each animal, they will sort of in provide a online videos, which is actually linked to a YouTube, YouTube, YouTube yeah. video, right? And so with that, you have to have a stable internet connection in order to watch the video. Mm. And, and then sometimes it's just very frustrating when the internet connection doesn't work as they intended. Or there are also some other apps that will simply just crash because the internet connection broke down. So I will say either you have a stable internet connection infrastructure in your school, or maybe you need to consider avoiding using those apps. Mm -hmm. Maybe well, try to find um, offline-based uh, apps would be an alternative way to do this kind of activity. So you yeah. download a video before you actually ask kids to look at it, that would be one of the solutions. Yeah. Or another way is that, because um, usually the internet will break down because there are too many people going online at the same time. Right. So like what we just mentioned about like those kind of station activities, if you divide students into different groups and have them 
explore different apps in the group, then maybe there will be only five to six students need to use the internet. So in that case, you know, you don't have that many people using internet at the same time, so the internet won't crash that easily. Yeah, we, I mean, we definitely work on a limited, more fragile network as well, and, and we don't, we wouldn't even try here to have everyone <laughs> watching a video at the same time, unless it's something really short. But if there's something heavy to load, we we tend not to. I think this would be a, a great time for us to jump to one of our slides, and this was um, something we. Uh, had mentioned before is like w when you're selecting or I guess when you're analyzing how you're using apps or, or any technology we talked about different methods of thinking about how you're integrating and so I think the most common is the bottom left one the SAMR model and I know I think that's what your teachers were using in the study as well so that when you're talking about using a content app for example it's gonna have limitations as far as how far you can push it up into modification or redefinition but some of the content apps are inescapable. I mean, there's some great ones. We have fifth graders studying body systems, and some of the visualizations they get are absolutely amazing. So they, they get to actually analyze the body in a way they couldn't do, do with normal text. Um, but some of these other models, I think, would open up those as well. I know TPAC is what you guys said you use as far as thinking about technology at your university integration. But you said with a, with a teacher level or even with the freshman at your college, that you don't use that, that you try to stick to kind of simpler ways to think about it. Or the top left model here, um, just affordances and constraints, thinking about like what that app can do and, and how it's constrained. The middle top one is one that I've adapted and I've kind of appropriated this model. I'm not even sure if I'm using it correctly, but I think of it more as just sort of how technology can become this um, social facilitator that if you're using Google Docs or using something that everybody can get on and use, that it really makes you rethink how you're using the tool to reach your learning objective, how your community is involved, and what the division of labor is going to be. What is the role of everyone in the community? Then that right one is one we don't use as much, but it's very Bloom's taxonomy friendly. Um, I use that. Carol behind me uh, has used it. Do you, you want to talk about that a little bit? I use the TIMS, technology like metrics, with my teachers when we talk about their actions in the classroom and how they're organizing their children and uh, the activity. And it gives them a good vocabulary to start talking whether the students are collaborating, whether the students are active in the classroom. And uh, it gives a good point and because if we can, I work through that and then I connect it to SAMR. So the teachers understand some uh, basic active vocabulary, the verbs that they need to engage in in order to bring up to modification. Uh, redefinition. So some other just visual models that uh, we use as well, and this is one that I learned about the BLC, which is the, uh, the Alan November has a, a great conference in Boston every summer, and one is just thinking about where that app is taking you as far as 21st century learning skills. You see all these C words, curiosity, creation, critical thinking, communication, and collaboration, and I think this is more what we think about using productivity or creativity apps like an Explain Everything or an iMovie where you actually have to create the content. Um, then the middle one is a Mitch Resnick. Um, he's the designer of Scratch and I think Lego Mindstorm as well. Um, and just that idea of a low floor that there's not a lot of learning that you would have to teach the act to actually use the app. The wide walls would be the multi multiple applicability of the app. And then the high ceiling would be the higher order thinking skills you can reach by using that app as well. And then 
the model to the bottom right is Bloom's taxonomy on its head. And that kind of gets us thinking more about some of the, the better, I think, applications of technology when you use it within a project model, when you're thinking about that product at the end. What are the kids going to create or the problem they're going to solve? And then you can really think about how the tool is going to help you get there. So before you start thinking about like the lower reams of blooms, the remembering the understanding, you kind of get the kids to frame the study. And I think this is all over in education. That's a, essential questions are about that. Um, the driving questions of the Buck Institute, they all kind of center around that same thing. That brings us to the topic of just project-based learning in general, of how this is a great atmosphere to um, put your technology in the framework of the project. And so here's just three models, and plus the 21st century learning skills. The top left one is from the Buck Institute. And everything's kind of designed on this clear entry point, clear exit point, that you start with some kind of emergence, some kind of inquiry, before you go into the actual content study and you have that final product in mind at the end. And that's prevalent here in the design thinking model as well and in the challenge-based learning. And the 21st century learning skills we just put up here to kind of think about these are the skills that are more prevalent in this kind of, of study model. I know you guys have done some work with um, project-based learning and technology, and I would love to get your input on what you all worked with here as far as the M LMS support, or is this... Sorry, with the learning management system. And the one you used, is it called the PIHNet? What is the system called? Could you tell us a little bit about this? Uh, okay. Um, first of all, I have to admit that I am no expert of problem-based learning or project-based learning. But because I am involved in this research project, so I just talk a little bit about what I know about this project. So um, the PH PIHNet stands for the Persistence Issues in History. This is the tool that um, our university developed for supporting social studies teachers' um, instructional design and their professional development. So in this net, um, simply it's just um, where does, how can I say that? Um, so. We have this tool for social studies teachers, and then we also have another one called SSI, the um, Social Scientific Inquiry Network. That one is for science teachers. And so both, both of those tools, you will see that um, they have example learning strategies that teacher can use for engaging students into problem-based learning. And they will also provide example lesson plans for the for the teachers, so on the on the power, on the PowerPoint slides you see here, um, one of the example they have is a think aloud session, and for that session they provide a lesson plan like the cold word, I'm talking about like the cold word, right? And then they will also provide what how the teacher will actually realize the lesson plan in their classroom. They will have a series of classroom videos. So if you are in part of this network, you will be able to access those videos and learn how you can actually realize the lessons in the classroom. So this is how um, the university is supporting teaching instructional design. And all the resources will be in the network sort of provide um, of how the teachers can revise their instruction at the same time. 
So on the the left image you have on this slide, um, you you see a chat box, right? That's actually a chat box where um, all the teachers can collaborate together, can talk synchronously online about their instruction. So that's pretty much um, how they are trying to trying to um, help the teachers learn and in develop their instruction on this tool. Does that help? Yeah, so is this something, this is more like, I think, high school or middle school level, but is this something that the students would also get on here access and they would be accountable to the activities in their project through this system? Is that what I'm looking at? Um, or is it more of a planning template for the, for the teachers? I would say, I'm not sure if students can collaborate on the tool. I don't think students can collaborate on the tool. However, this is... This is where the students will access whatever resources the teacher wants them to explore. Like whatever articles the teacher provided, um, the student will access those articles on, the, on this website. Uh, and the teacher will sort of um, highlight whatever keywords in the articles for the students. And they will provide like the definition or the glossary of the articles for the students. That's how they are sort of scaffolding for the students, but students won't be collaborating on that network. Students will just go through a face-to-face -face collaboration and discussion in class. Uh, okay, so if the school was using a different, they might have a different platform like an Edmodo or a Google Classroom for the students to actually curate their work and, and interact there. Very yeah. cool. But another interesting thing about how we are doing this project is that um, for the research part, we actually use another tool called MediaCore. That's a tool where you, we, um, it allows the researchers to screencast what students are doing on their, on their computer. And then at the same time, you, you, will, you will also open their webcam on the computer so you can record students' facial expressions. So that is a really powerful tool. If I know, like, like very interesting about how to capture students' thought process and then how to encourage students' reflection. So that will be like a really tool for for that too, to capture how the students are critically thinking about the problems in the problem-based learning scenario. Doing think aloud. Doing think aloud. I have heard about this research being done. I'm not sure if it's at your university, but this is what you're talking about, where the student space is being filmed while they're doing the reading, and they can actually track with the software if their eyes are scanning the page, what their facial expression is, how much time they spend on task, how much time they spend off task. And it's pretty fascinating. We definitely don't do that down here. Um, but what we do do is use a lot of... I mean, we, we're a Google uh, platform, so we use Google Docs a lot, and we use Google Classroom to curate a lot of the students' work. And with the teachers, we use Google Communities to run, just to spread ideas about tech innovation. And then I've heard that other schools use, I think you all use Canvas at the graduate level uh, for sharing among colleagues. Um, and there's one called Haiku Learning that I heard Dr. Lisa Palmieri mention that they use, they're real happy with. Uh, and then, of course, a lot of schools use Edmodo to curate um, their students and get them socializing online as well. Um, questions about this monitoring the students. Have you followed up on any of that research? Like, has that led to any great discoveries about like how to design things better for kids? 
as far as monitoring, you know, through video software, how they're interacting with the material? So uh, we we're talking about this idea of being able to monitor a student's face while they're interacting with the screen. Um, have, have they come up with any grand conclusions about this kind of research, about how things can be designed better for students to interact as far as like their reactions as they're going through the content? Um, no, I, I was referring to the, some research that you were talking about being done about how they're using um, like facial recognition software as kids, uh -huh. as, as students are reading through the content. I, I've read only read the reports that this is sort of out there and being done. What I was wondering is if the, in the research world is any sort of, have they learned anything new about how kids learn online by looking at this kind of material? So. Um, Unfortunately, <laughs> what we just implemented this year, not long ago, like a month ago, we just collected data through that, uh, the, 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 the traction systems I mentioned. So uh, at this stage, we probably don't know anything about it yet. Uh, okay. So next year, we'll, we'll talk to you again, right around the time, <laughs> you, yeah. right around the time you're finishing your dissertation. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to you again. I wish. <laughs> okay. So... Um, Going back to this idea of the case-based learning, and you talked about how they collected uh, the, the cases by, or you use with your freshman students, the cases that they investigate when they go and talk to schools. And I just wanted to show off, like, uh, one of the things we do is look at what we're doing in-house uh, before we research on. And on this slide right here, the left side is what our learning center does, or at least what the those that are involved in a study project, they use something called Schoolology. And this allows for one teacher to post a case, and then the teachers in that group have to leave comments on that case. And we've tried something similar in elementary on the right side. That's a Google community post where um, a teacher will post a video or screencast or some photo of a practice, and they'll write it up in a quick paragraph. And then the teachers in, on this pilot program are supposed to go and then use the SAMR model to critique the post. And then when they come together, once a week, they discuss their post and talk about kind of like next steps from there. Um, was that very successful with you guys using this kind of case-based study with your students? I think so. Um, so right now, um, our students are doing four weeks projects for this kind of case analysis project. So what they did is um, we asked them to connect with the teacher and then ask the teachers to provide the teaching contact school um, information about what they, uh, the, the problems. Yeah, the problems they are facing, the issues, um, the difficulties, or any extra help that the teacher wants them to help. And then, um, then students will um, basically look in at the contacts, problems, issues, analyze it, and then um, find the good technology resources that could be able to use to solve the problems or to address the learning objectives um, in that lesson unit. So that's how we um, approach this um, case. But um, we are using Google Docs for this uh, kind of project. So um, some of my students, they will share the Google Doc with the teacher they are working with and then ask for feedback. So teachers will just directly comment on the Google Docs about what they think about um, their approach. Uh, if that makes sense to them, if that's feasible, or do you miss anything that you didn't you didn't hear?
uh, I think that Google Doc is a great place to do this kind of collaboration. And I also think um, if the activities that you guys are doing on the Google Plus, that's very powerful. But um, do you guys think about how you are going to like store store do um, like a library to collect all the cases that you come up with, the video that you have. So in the future, for the future teachers, they can kind of reuse those um, resources again. So that's the idea of case-based reasoning, because um, you have a case here, and you want to use that in the future. So that's mm -hmm. like, um, I would suggest you guys to, to um, create a case library to include all the cases that you guys already solved. But those cases, those problems can be reused for the future teachers to, um, yeah, to do it again. Yeah, no, I hear you. And yeah, you know, we had that in our, um, in our discussions. As of now, we don't have, we don't have formally set up, but I've set up kind of keep a lot of Getting a big echo. Yeah, keep it on. Exhibit Hold on just a second. Hold on just a second. Okay. Keep the log of exhibit work. And then um, keep that log in a Google site. Uh, so people can look at it afterwards. So what I do on my own is every time we use technology, I keep a log about it using the theory. How the tool is how the tool is used. What the learning objective, what the learning objective uh, what uh, what was in the community. Um, so I do that for professional development, but we're also a plan for a bigger kind of database. For you guys hear me? Because this, hear me? Cause this no. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I see your mouth moves, but I don't know what you're saying. All over the place. Must be saying something important. If you guys can maybe, oh, now it's better. Okay. How's that? How's that? Can you stay? Is that better? I don't know. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what I was saying was, yeah, that's definitely a direction we want to go. We don't have anything officially set up like that as far as database goes. I log how technology is being used just on a spreadsheet, like every time we use a tech piece. And I do it in an activity theory method just because I'm really interested in how the tech is used not only to encapsulate thoughts of kids but as a community. So what's everyone's role as we're using those tech pieces? Um, and so what we have kind of planned is just a Google site. So when we enter next year, we have our, our best cases. So like if you want to use this app, you can go and see um, who has used it and, and what are some of the best ways it's been used. Um, so it's definitely, we know that needs to be done. We just haven't. Come up with a plan, like yeah, who's going to exactly. do the labor for that? But we'll we'll figure that out. But then, regarding that, I had a question uh, from what you've seen so far in your study. What uh, would be some of the like, let's say, best practices for iPad use in the classroom? Like, what are some exceptional things you've seen, uh, like taking place right now? So, uh, you guys here? Okay, so um, there is a one teacher, because all of the teachers they are very experienced in our case. So um, we have seen that they use this for the project-based learning approach. 
Um, it's they basically, uh, I think plan is very important. You have to have a very comprehensive plan ahead of time. And then I remember a teacher, she told me that because I was very um, surprised to see how her um, instructions were so well organized and step by step. And then she told me that it's just a lot of trial. So you need to keep trying and trying, practice and practice. Um, and then confidence is also very important. You need to build up the teacher's teachers tech literacy, I would say. It's you have the ability to to use technology very well and you are familiar with all the features uh, functions within the apps. So you know um, how you are going to use this and for planning um, iPads for instructions, I noticed that for um, the teachers should not just focus on using one app for uh, the project. Um, the teachers actually use a lot of different apps. So like the example that we looked, she incorporates QR codes. So um, kids will scan the QR code to access a picture and then they will save that picture to the photo album and then they use a um, app called um, Bloom Stickies to um, get that pictures and then they add speech bubbles. So that's a project to kind of do a formative assessment because in the previous week they just learned about a, um, an inventor. It's um, what's his name? Abraham Yeah, It's about scientists. Uh, scientist. So they use that project to um, make sure kids learn the facts about that inventor. So they use speech bubbles to talk about um, pretend they uh, pretend kids are pretending themselves as a scientist to talk about what they learned about the facts about that inventors. So I think that's a very powerful approach because you don't you can also document what kids learned. So they will save that pictures and then they can send that pictures to parents to showcase their knowledge. So mm. this kind of project-based learning I think is, from my perspective, I think is more powerful than just doing drill and practices in the stations. Because I think the meaning-making process, the creation process really um, make kids learning more enhancing and more um, like that's the skill that they can use in the mm. future, like 21st century skills. Another thing we observed is that the teachers are using iPads in a way that they sort of differentiate students' learning experience in the classroom. So as we mentioned, the, the teachers will divide students into different stations. In different stations, they are, they are using different apps. So for certain apps, it's, pro it's probably the um, letter recognition activity. For the other apps, it's probably involved a more higher order thinking learning test. So the teachers will actually divide students into different groups based on what kind of learning needs the students have. And that's, I think that's a very exemplary way of using iPad. So for yeah. differentiate instruction. Yeah. Hmm. Now that you talk, you want to go, right? <laughs> yeah, I want to ask a question before I have to go very quickly. Um, I use iPads for literacy, and we also use it for math, science, and social studies. 
And something I noticed that was really cool for my last project was that we didn't use it only for performing or creating, but we also used it for researching and for keeping notes. So the way that we were doing it is that students were reading, they were writing down post-its, and then they would take pictures and store them in their camera rolls. Um, and now I want to move that forward into using Evernote so that they can write long on their iPads. But my question is um, regarding all this um, research that is against uh, using iPads for literacy on, for example, first drafts. Um, what is your opinion or what has been um, your, uh, what have you seen in, in your own research regarding this? Is it really worth uh, writing on paper first and then moving on to using um, these technologies? Or if we should, I mean, should we just, you know, go right on ahead and do research note-taking and writing our first drafts um, on iPads? So, so I, I think on top of that, I would just throw into, like, New York Times published uh, a couple of different research reports about the difference between uh, remembering things after you write them, handwrite them, and remembering them after you, after you type them. Uh, so is there, like, a giant processing difference about how this goes to the brain, about how we make things stick, and when you're dealing with young kids who are still learning the motor skills of, of writing, uh, what are you guys' thoughts on that? Okay, so, um, so um, since I'm doing the research in early childhood um, teachers and youth technology, so there's a lot of people who ask me what's your opinion about young children use this kind of technology. But based on my understanding, those research um, papers, they are more focused on, um, I think there is an age limit is under three. So I would admit that if I have a kid under three years old, I would not use technology for this kid's um, learning activities. But I will sometimes maybe expose them to um, let them know this is one of the technologies that you will be able to use in the future. But I will limit the screen time very strictly for the kids under three years old. But if, if they are older than three years old, I think it is um, I think it's very important you allow them to use this because everybody's using it. Even the parents are using it. They are looking at you using it. And how can you say, no, you cannot use it, but I'm keeping using it. So it's really hard to convince your kids to not tell them. They have curiosity. They want to use that. It just depends on I think quantity is not the quality. It's how you want your kid to use this. And I would also uh, suggest parents to use technology with kids. Don't just throw your phone or your iPad to kids' hands without more um, scaffolding or um, structures. So, so as the teachers, you don't want just throw the iPad to kids' hands without giving them a lot of um, support, assistance, scaffolding. I think it's very important you use the device together, and you want to. Um, design some activities to, to um, enhance their learning and to, to kind of force them to do higher order thinking, not just doing like very basic web or something like that. But, and then go back to your question uh, about if we should just focus on typing or writing. I would say we can do the hybrid way. Mm -hmm. So some of the activities you might want to still stick on the print base activities or um, writing activities, but for some activities it is 
feasible to just let them do the typing and maybe share on the blog and then they can comment to each other to get more feedback from each other. I think that's a great way to do collaborative learning. Mm. Thank you. I would say like in your example, if it were me, the first draft I will have the student do that on iPad because iPads allow them to do the revision mm -hmm. or like resize the image, change the sequence more easily. Um, it, it also goes back to what um, Chris posted on the inquiry document about the question about efficiency. My understanding of efficiency, efficient use of technology is whether they can make instructions. Not the time, not the time you spend on planning the instruction, but the time you do the instruction in class. If you're using iPad to do the same activity, then the activity can be shortened to within 50 minutes instead of 30 minutes. Why, why don't you use iPad to do the same one, to do the same activity, right? So for the teachers, for the students doing a research project, if they can just come along with the ideas or collaborate on iPad more efficiently, why don't they just collaborate on iPad instead of using paper and pencils to write down their ideas? You can have like what Gabby um, just mentioned, doing a blended hybrid type of instruction or, or like the learning text where they start with the first draft on the iPad and then the second draft using paper and pencil. So, you know, students will be touch upon both skills they need to learn in, in terms of literacy and study. I hope that. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we, we hit 2 o'clock and the kids start running around outside, so um, I would love to keep talking, but we will be in touch. I, I, I'll send you um, the final published copy of our, our cast as well. You can see people are already running out because they have to get to classes. Thank you very much for spending the time. Uh, it was great planning this with you guys uh, and, and seeing how people are doing these things in other parts. <laughs> Oh, I, I had a little, little question now that you mentioned uh, uh, differentiating for other learners. Uh, is there anything you've seen for special education as far as iPad use? Special education. So in our um, study, we didn't have the chance to actually see the special, uh, students with special needs, but when we are teaching our pre-service teachers, we have one week. Uh, specifically focusing on um, teaching them how to use technology for the kids with special needs. So like assistive technology and um, how they, um, what are the available tools in terms of iPads or the computer-based programs that can be used for um, helping those kids. So one of the apps we taught them for, for to teach um, students with special needs is to recognize emotions. But I forgot the name of the app. Uh, I've seen a couple and of And then there's another app to help colorblind students to recognize different colors to, to sort of match the colors and the name of it because they will have trouble to distinguish different colors and that app can actually help them. That's the two apps I can remember in terms of students with special needs. We can share the list that uh, we um, have for teaching, not teaching, uh, for helping those um, kids with special needs, the app that we have. Yeah. Great. That'll, that'll be us. That'll be us. Yeah, we have that document set up there, so please do. Also, yeah. also, 
Did you understand? 有没有用iPad教汉语的一些资料啊? We do have some, I, I use some app to teach Chinese to um, elementary school kids before, so I can also share those resources with you. And I know my kids love those apps, so I think it will work just fine in your class. Okay. okay. Yeah. Thank you. That wraps it up for this episode, Journeys in Podcasting. In our next session, we're going to be researching using uh, some gamification methods, using storyboards, using simulations, and using Minecraft as a construction tool. You can find us here on iTunes. You can also find our Facebook page, Journeys in Podcasting, that will link you into our video website as well. I tweet at Chris Davis CNG. And you can also find Natalia Leone at Aurelia. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-A. And uh, Diego Lopez at Techie Boy. That's T-E-C-H-Y underscore underscore B-O-Y. And Austin Levinson featured in this program can is suddenly active on Twitter and he can be found at Solabares, S-O-L-A-B-A-R-E-S. We'll catch up with you next time. Bye-bye.